Joel chapter. Joel chapter 1, verse 5, and it reads as follows. Awake ye drunkards, and weep, and howl all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree, and made it clean bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth from the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. The field is wasted. The land mourneth, for the corn is wasted, and the new wine is dried up. The oil languisheth it. Be ashamed, O ye husbandmen. Howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree languisheth, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, and even all the trees of the field are withered, because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, ye priests, howl, ye ministers of the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God, for the meat offering and drink offering is withholden from the house of your God. Oh, changing this. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for giving us your word, the Bible, that we have it to learn from, to study, to make it part of our lives. Lord, be with me now. Give me the power to speak your word, to share your word with this congregation. Be with all the other Sunday school right now as they hear your word and accept the power of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue now with our study of the book of Joel. Last time we did our introduction about this prophet and that this book that he wrote Right? What was it about? Who was he? Why did he write this? That kind of basic information is what we started off with when we began our study here. If you remember, Joel is someone that we don't know very much about. It doesn't say in the Bible when he lived or, you know, any facts about him, like what he did or any other kind of information. It's pretty bare bones. We don't know all the who, what, when, where, why. Of Joel. And part of it might be intentional. It might be intentional. We studied last time when we looked at verses 1 to 4, we saw that God said that this message was not just for the Israel of the day, but it's for their children and their children's children, right? So maybe part of not tying this story and this message down to one date has to do with the fact that God wants this message to be everlasting, continuing, that's applicable to the people in Joel's time, and it's applicable to us today. It's not just confined to one area, one time. Also, when I talked about Joel, we talked about what is the big theme. You know, this is what I'm big on, right? I try to give you the one word or one sentence summary of each book we study, right? And for Joel... The one-sentence summary of what this is about, meaning if you learn nothing else and you ignore all the other lessons we have on this book and forget everything, remember this. Joel, the prophet, talks about this. He talks about how God is sovereign. God's in control. God is all-powerful. God is sovereign. It's even expressed in his name, the name Joel, Joel. What does that mean translated? Roughly translated... It means Jehovah is Lord. Jehovah is Lord. 
That's right consistent with what he talks about in this book, is it not? That God is sovereign. God is sovereign. So if you learn nothing else, know that as we study this book, all three chapters here, the repeated thing that we're going to say over and over again is that this shows how God is sovereign. And it starts off right from the start in verses 1 to 4, talking about an illustration of how God shows his power, about how powerful he is, how we often forget how powerful he is, right? And that was the example through this invasion of locusts. We saw in verse number four. Verse number four talks about all these different kind of uh, insects, right? That's about the palmer worm, the locust, the canker worm, the caterpillar. And last time we looked at it in detail, and we, I explained to you how actually all those are the same thing, right? Locusts are just like, as you guys know about probably from your elementary school, like butterflies and moths, right? Like, they don't start off as just like a butterfly, right? They start off as a little, like, a caterpillar, right? And they grow and they change and they metamorphosize and eventually they turn into a butterfly, right? Locusts are the same way. Locusts, they start off as these, uh, these smaller worms, right? The palmer worm, right? The worm that can only lick, right? The canker worm, right? The ones that gnaw, the caterpillar, the ones that eat, and of course, the locust, the thing that swarms, right? And so last time we talked about how this coming disaster was coming. And this is a real disaster. I mean, we don't think about it as much nowadays. Nowadays, because of advanced you know, pesticides and stuff like that, the fear of locust invasion isn't as big a deal. But I mentioned last time that there was such a thing as recent as 100 years ago, right? And 100 years ago and around Syria, I think, there's a huge, like, locust plague, basically, right? So it has happened within, you know, close to our lifetimes, right, within 100 years, that there's this horrible locust. And why are locusts so horrible? Because part of it is with the way they multiply. And I think that's why God mentions the whole life cycle of the locusts. Right? It keeps going. Right? It's not just that there's one wave of locusts. The locusts, they eat and they leave behind their babies and they grow into more locusts. And the swarm keeps coming and coming and coming. It's also very symbolic of what happened to Israel. Right? Israel, they had the problems. It didn't stop after Joel's time. In fact, it continues. Right? It remultiplies. The babies grow up and grow fly and the swarm again. Right? And so it is that the message of Joel back in, you know, whatever it was, 800 BC, 700 BC or whatever, continued to repeat for God's people even till today, right? It's a never-ending cycle, right? The worms keep on growing. And likewise, it keeps on going on in our lives here. So what do we have to say about this locust invasion? Verses 5 through 13. Verse 5, warning. Who's the warning to? God gives a warning. Awake ye drunkards, right? Awake ye drunkards and ye drinkers of wine. So he's telling you drunkards, hey, wake up. Something's coming, right? What is it coming? It's going to be like verse 6 and 7. How bad is it going to be? It's going to be like a lion. It's, going to, it's as if a lion is coming to attack you, right? This, this locust invasion. It's going to be as bad as a lion. How bad is it? Verse 7. Verse 7, it talks about the destruction that's become to these trees, right? Like the fig tree. It's going to be laid waste, right? It's going to be laid down to bark even. That's how much these locusts will eat down, right? The branches will be made white. Branches made white. I'm going to eat everything. Destroy everything, right? 
Warn, uh, what does it say about the priests? Verse 9, right? Verse 9. Warning them, it's going to be that the meat offering and the drink offering will be cut off. There'll be no food left. There'll be no food left, not even for any offerings or anything. Why is that? Verse 10. The field is wasted. The field is wasted. And the land mourneth. The corn is wasted, right? All this stuff is wasted. And what locusts do, right? They eat everything. They destroy everything. Next person that gets uh, called out in verse 11. Ye husbandmen, farmers, right? Ye husbandmen, howl. Why is that? The wheat and the barley. The harvest of the field is perished. Verse 12. The vine is dried up. And then there's a list of all these trees that are withered, withered. So gird yourself up, verse 13, and lament, ye priests, how, how ye ministers of the altar. That's the sign of the destruction that's coming. So he gave the warning to these people, telling them all this kind of destruction is coming, all this bad stuff. Sounds pretty bad, right? Trees eaten down to their very bark, right? Corn, all gone. Not even enough for any offerings or anything like that. That's the warning that Joel had for Israel that we know from our previous studies when we studied Hosea and stuff that they ultimately did not listen to. But I find it interesting the folks that he calls out here, especially the first group that he calls out, and what does it mean to us today? In verse number five, when the warning comes down, look who, he, look who God calls to first. He says, awake ye drunkards, right? All ye drinkers of wine. Now, I know we talk about this a fair amount, but it bears repeating. Why is it bear repeating? Because God talks about it in the Bible. And that is that God doesn't like things like alcohol and wine. You know, a lot of people ask me or they ask, you know, they, that ask generally about, you know, Christians. I'm like, why do people, why do, why, where do you get this thing about, oh, Christians ought not to drink alcohol, not ought to drink wine, and all these type of things, right? Where is it really? Isn't it really just, oh, you shouldn't be like sinful, right? You shouldn't be like uh, getting drunk and like, you know, drunk driving and killing people and stuff like that. What's wrong with uh, having a drink now and then, right? And in fact, there's many Christians I know, many, many Christians that have that attitude. They say, what's wrong with having a drink? I don't do any of these other things that are bad associated with alcohol. I know how to control myself. Why is it bad, right? Why is it a bad thing that I like to have a glass of wine or I have a beer now and then or whatever? You know, I hang out with my coworkers after work and go for a drink. What's so bad about it? Where does it say that's such a horrible thing? Well, I think this verse over here speaks to alcohol in this way. Not necessarily, as those people might point out, not necessarily as alcohol being the soul and you know, utter evil of anything, right? But as symbolic, I think there's a reason why these drunkards get called out first. And it's a symbolic reason of what it represents to Israel and what they were doing wrong and why this judgment was coming in and why they were missing it, why they weren't caught paying attention, why were they caught off guard by these locusts? Why are they caught off guard by God's judgment? Why is that? Why is that? It's because they were, well, in the most literal sense, it's because they were drunk, right? You know, that's what it says here in the Bible, right? That, oh, you guys know that when you're drunk, you're not paying attention, your, your mind is impaired, right? But I think the alcohol represents something more symbolic. And I think it represents something symbolic for us today. I think it represents the state of mind that Israel had reached 
at that point. Remember, as we studied in the past when we talked about the history of Israel at this point in time, or roughly around this time, Israel was in decent shape, right? You remember King David, King Solomon. These kings had put them in good shape. They had their own country, their own lands. They had money, they had food. They were in like decent shape. And it was only then, only when they were in decent shape that they were, in, uh, that they were not you know, facing the risk of uh, destruction all the time or whatever. That's when they turned to things like idols. They, turned, they got looser and turned to like sins that they got influenced by their neighboring countries to follow these other practices that God had forbidden. It's because they got comfortable. They said, you know what? You know what? Things are going well. I don't need to be as vigilant when it comes to like following God's word or whatever. You know, I'm just gonna relax right now. I'm relax, I'm gonna go and do the things that I need to do. And that is how they got caught off guard. And that is how they got fallen into sin. And that is kind of similar to how many Christians approach alcohol today. What am I saying? Well, sometimes we talk about alcohol, we talk about you know, one class of people. We know people that are really like, oh, they are you know, the type that you see like on the street, the winos, the true drunkards, right? They're drowning their sins in alcohol. They're drowning their, their sorrows in alcohol, right? That they just, you know, they are, they are so addicted that this is what they do, right? Now, when it comes to people that I know, like I said, Christians that I know that drink alcohol, they're not like that at all, right? I think you know that. I think many people that you know that drink alcohol, you say, they're not like that. No one I know is, uh, is the drunkard on the street that's lying on the sidewalk begging for money to get their next beer or whatever, right? Most of them are people just like you and me that just, you know, they enjoy this drink or whatever, for whatever reason. So what's the point? What's the point? Why rail against this? Why say, oh, it's a bad thing or whatever? Why is God calling them out first? I think it's because it's an indication of what is our attitude toward God and what is our attitude toward his standards and his teachings. And Christians who take this kind of attitude of, oh, you know, you know I'm, watching, I'm watching the football game. I'm going to drink a beer. No big deal, right? I'm just you know, sitting at home watching a football game. I'm going to drink a beer. So what? Well, the ones that say, oh, I'm going out to a nice dinner, right? I'm going out to a nice dinner. I'm having my fancy meal. I got to drink the wine pairing. I got to drink this wine or whatever, right? It's just, it's just good. It doesn't, doesn't make me a drunk driver. It doesn't make me, you know, an abusive husband or whatever. Nothing like that. But it reflects on our attitude, our attitude. To say, basically, when we take that attitude, it's basically like, well, we don't care, right? Isn't that kind of the, the attitude? It's like, well, we know, God, that you say this bad thing about alcohol, that, oh, it can lead to such bad things, right? It could lead to all this sin. It could lead to all this trouble. But, you know, God, I'm telling you, I'm smarter. I can handle it. I can figure it out. That becomes your attitude, Right? Your attitude becomes, oh, I know better, God. I can handle it. It's no big deal. You know, what you say is no big deal. But God's telling you, he's warning you, hey, this alcohol has bad consequences. We ought to avoid it, right? It's like, like this. You know, like nowadays, a lot of the news people say guns, right? Guns can, guns can have bad consequences, right? It can lead to people getting killed, horrible stuff. So if you knew all this bad stuff about guns, right? Would you say this? Well, you know, 
I'm a responsible gun owner and I know how to handle guns. So, you know, I'm going to fire this gun toward those people in the, sitting in the back right there. I'm a good shot. I'm a good aim. It's not going to hit them. It's not going to kill them. It's okay, right? It's okay, right? Would you guys say it's okay? Probably not, right? You wouldn't say, why would you, Norm, why would you take that risk, right? I know you're a good shot and you say you're a good aim and it's not going to hurt anyone, but those people are sitting right there in the back. Are you sure you're going to shoot the gun right over their head, right? Well, that's kind of the way God's telling us about things like alcohol. Yeah. You know what? Odds are you'll drink this and you'll be fine. No one will, no one will know, no one will ever care, right? But you're setting yourself up for that kind of possibility. You're setting yourself with such a careless attitude. And that attitude expands into our whole Christian lives. When we have that thought that, oh, God, I know you're warning, but I can handle it. I know better. I can figure it out. That comes and pervades all of our thinking. And if you think about it, and you think about those people you know, those Christians you know even, that drink alcohol, you see that reflect in their lives. Now, I haven't done scientific studies. I don't have statistics, but I can tell you what I observe from watching people, right? I watch people. I know Christians that they drink alcohol. They think it's fine, all that stuff. I observe this about them, and I compare them to people that take the strong stand that say, I will never drink alcohol, right? I don't want to take that chance. I don't take that risk of going against God. Which are the Christians that take the attitude of, hey, I got to go and soul win as much as possible. I got to go read my Bible as much as possible. I got to pray as much as possible. I got to go church and fellowship as much as possible. I don't think it's a surprise to say that those people that have dedicated themselves to say, hey, I'm not even going to risk taking any alcohol are the ones that are also going to say, I'm not going to risk missing reading my Bible, missing praying to God and worshiping God on Sundays. And that's reflective of the way they live their lives. On the flip side, I observe this about the people that say, oh, a little bit of alcohol is okay. They'll also say that, oh, you know, it's okay if I miss reading my Bible for one day or one week. I'll catch up later, right? They're making their own rules now, right? They're doing their own thing. I think it's okay. Oh, I forgot to pray. Ah, no big deal. It's only just one thing. Nothing bad happened, right? That's true. You cannot pray for one day and nothing bad will happen for to you. Just like you can drink one alcohol and nothing bad will happen to you. But it's emblematic of your whole lifestyle. That's the way it becomes, right? When it becomes like, oh, I could go out and get people saved, but you know, it's not convenient for me right now. That's not the way I want to handle it. I'll think about it later. That's the attitude of the people that say, I can twist the rule and bend the rule and drink the alcohol or whatever. And I think that's why God calls them out first. Because that's, that's the kind of what happened to Israel. They got comfortable. They got relaxed. Oh, things are going well in our country. God's blessing us. Ah, we can, we can relax now. We can do whatever. We can hang out with these idol worshipers. We can drink this alcohol. We can do this, that, and the other thing. Whatever we want to do. It's sometimes when we're the most comfortable that we get the most tempted to slip out of our good habits, right? And I myself am not, no exception to this. I observe this in my own life. When is it that I seem to fall mostly away from God, right? And not keep up with the things that I ought to be doing. Believe it or not, it's actually when I'm on vacation, 
Right? When I'm on vacation, oh, you figure that should be your happy time. You should be praising God. Oh, you're on vacation, you're going traveling, seeing the world, right? Doing this and the other thing, going to fun places. But it's when I'm going on vacation that, oh, I'm so wrapped up in that, right? Oh, I got to wake up early in the morning to go see this attraction, right? I got to get in line for this thing before I miss it, right? I want to go see this, uh, this fun place or this tourist attraction, take pictures. I got to walk all the way over there, ride the bus or drive my car, do this and the other thing, right? And while I'm there, oh, I'm in a new place. I got to try all the food there. And, you know, I think about this and plan out my day. And you're so busy and you're having fun the whole day. You get home, you don't think about, oh, let me sit down and read my Bible now, right? No one thinks like that. You're busy having fun, right? Or let me think about, oh, let me take some time to pray and praise God for everything. No, that's when, me personally, that's when I forget. When I get wrapped up in going off and having fun and doing all these great things. So it is in our own lives too. The more God blesses us, it seems, sometimes the more we forget him. And that's why we need this reminder. The reminder that Joel's giving here. That let's not forget that God is sovereign. Why are you having such a good time? Why are you so blessed? Because of God. Isn't God in control? Doesn't God control everything? Doesn't he make sure that you have a great day and a happy time? Didn't he make sure that Israel had all this great blessing and riches and treasures in their country? In fact, Israel saw all these things. That's amazing. It's amazing. They witnessed miracles from God, literal miracles. Yet they could turn around a generation later and say, you know what, God? I don't think it's such a big deal. It's okay. You know, you had your thing. I'm doing it my way now. It's okay. They lost their way. That's why he had to send Joel to remind them of the right thing. That's why he had sent the locusts. To remind them, hey, look at these locusts. Is there anything you guys want to say about that? Is that a demonstration of God's power? A demonstration that everything that God blessed you with could be taken away just like that? A reminder that you can't be like the drunkard that's not keeping watch. You've got to be alert, on your guard, always remembering, hey, this is God. This is God, God, ruler of everything, blesser of everything, that we have to be vigilant in our honoring him, our worship of him, or everything. I think that's why he calls out these drunkards first, even before he calls out the husbandmen, right? The farmers. Obviously, they're affected by all this stuff, right? All their crops about even before he calls out the priests, the priests that, are, that, that supposedly were supposed to be teaching all these people, hey, worship God and do all this good stuff, right? Don't follow the idols. That's what they're supposed to be doing. Even before he calls out those people, first things first, calls out, awake ye drunkards, because it's, symbol, it's, it's, it's the symbolism, the symbolism of the people that just did not care. It's okay. We'll drink the wine. We'll relax. And that's how they got, as it says in the Bible here, cut off. Cut off. We don't want to be cut off from God. Because remember, God has given us everything. He's given us all our blessings. He's given us salvation. He's given us everlasting life. We'll talk about so much in the second half with the resurrection, right? That Jesus Christ died on the cross to take away our sins so that you, 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 me, everyone here, that when we die, we know we're going to heaven. 
How great is that? That by simply trusting Jesus Christ, by saying, Jesus, I believe you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. Just by saying that, we all get that gift of heaven. How powerful is God? God is sovereign. He has the power to do all that. Take away sins. Give us everlasting life. Give us heaven. Do we turn our back on him? Do we say we know better? I hope not. We'll talk more about God's punishments and God's warnings next time, but we're out of time right now. Let's bow for a word of prayer. And while we're praying, let me ask you, have you accepted Jesus in your heart? God's given us so much blessings and so many great things. Maybe you haven't accepted Jesus in your heart yet, and God isn't sovereign in your life. Well, dear friend, if you want to have the gift of everlasting life, if you want to have a sovereign God in your life, I ask you this. Repeat the simple prayer in your heart right now. Let's pray. Dear God, please look in my heart. I know I've sinned. I know I've done wrong. And I know that I deserve a punishment for my sins. But God, right now, I want to trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, your son who died on the cross. Jesus Christ, your son who was resurrected. I want to trust in him to take away all my sins. Take my sins and place them on Jesus. I want Jesus to save me from all of my sins. And I thank you for this gift, God. And I also pray this, dear God, thank you for your word and Joel, a reminder of your sovereignty about how you know better than all of us. You know, when we think in our own minds, oh, just like those drunkards of times past, just like people today, even Christians that drink alcohol today, think that we can figure it out better and we know better and control ourselves better. No, no, no. We want to follow your word and your guidance and your leadership. Help us. Help us be in your word, to know your word, and to live your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.